Well, thank you very much for um, joining me for this talk. Um, it's very nice to be back. I didn't quite expect to be back so soon, but uh, it's very nice here again. Um, just before I start, I'd like to kind of clarify what this talk is not about. So my, the, the, the crux of my talk is primarily theoretical. So the empirical examples that, that I will bring up are, is exactly that. It's an empirical example of how this theoretical structure that I'm trying to build will help us understand or does it help us understand the things that are happening in the world. Um, so a lot of the examples that I bring up you will have been familiar with if you have been following a lot of discussions about international criminal justice or transitional justice. Um, and that is uh, partly um, by design because I wanted to see if all the well-known cases that we have now can be more systematically studied and better understood by using the kind of framework that I am developing. So the title, I only mentioned Uganda and Colombia. Um, those were those will be the kind of main examples that I bring in, but I would also talk a little bit about Cambodia as we as we go on. So the the topic of my talk is about um, conceptualizing international criminal justice as a political strategy. So this kind of framework came from an empirical puzzle, a question that I had looking at the world as it was. And that question was, why do states initiate processes of international criminal justice? Particularly, and here I use the rather problematic term global south, uh, but I'll come back to the, the, the justifications of why I use it as we go along. But, but, it, but it seemed to me quite puzzling as somebody coming out of international relations and comparative politics that states that we consider to be weaker in terms of the international hierarchy. I don't necessarily mean that they're institutionally weak or they're a quote-unquote failing state, but if you look at the, the world, there is some kind of a hierarchy in operation, and they seem to be on the lower ends of it or the less um, powerful end of it. Um, and, these, and, and these states do initiate processes of international criminal justice. And this was particularly uh, put into stark contrast in the present day, where we hear a lot of grumblings coming out, primarily from the African Union. Um, just recently, Burundi has decided, apparently, that it's going to leave the ICC. Whether it's going to come to fruition is, is to, be, to be confirmed. But in this kind of milieu of criticizing international criminal justice as some, somehow amenable to become a political instrument of the powerful. It was quite interesting to me to see the history of the development of international criminal justice, which is rather short, and recognizing the fact that in different places and times, there were actors who were not necessarily the Americas or the Western Europeans or whatnot, who were voluntarily initiating processes of international criminal justice uh, for their for primarily domestic situations, so internal conflicts involving their own citizens, things that were happening within their own borders. And this was an empirical puzzle for the reasons that I've said so now, but it's also a theoretical puzzle because especially from the field that I am coming out of in international relations, there is, a, I think, quite prevalent assum unspoken assumption sometimes that somehow the development of laws, legal systems and laws such as international criminal justice and international criminal law is different or even antithetical to the state-centric kind of system of politics that we have or we have created um, in, the, in the modern era. And there are valid reasons to think of it like that. One of which is that, and I'm sure many people here are familiar with these things, 
But just to reiterate, one of the one of the reasons would be that international criminal justice allows an international judicial body. Now we can recognize the ICC, but even previ- um, prior to the ICC, some kind of international judicial body can directly um, prosecute an individual without the without the direct mediation of a domestic judiciary. This kind of violates sort of what what some may consider the sacrosanct. Uh, authority of the state to be the sole jurisdictional holder within its own territories over its own peoples. Um, And uh, so this kind of creation of a direct link between international law and the individual kind of bypasses state authority as we have conceived of it. And in in my field, some people call it the Westphalian model of, of, of sovereignty. So if we hold that theoretical concept to be true, that developments such as international criminal justice that directly links particularly international, uh, the, the idea of criminality, the prosecution of crime um, of individuals and, and the international sphere, if those two things are directly linked and that is antithetical to the state, it is really puzzling as to why states that one could reasonably assume are under most threat of protecting their sacrosanct authority of, of sole jurisdiction over the domestic territories and people to go ahead and say, wait, actually, we want an international body to be investigating, to be prosecuting, to be doing these processes. So what is really going on here? I start, I decided um, sort of the theoretical kind of departure point for me was to turn that assumption on its head and say, wait, is the state and international criminal justice actually really antithetical? Is this a nice illusion that we have created, um, uh, both sort of rarefying and idealizing what the state is and state authority is, and also what international criminal justice can do? Um, And turning that kind of assumption on its head uh, I think it creates a possibility of thinking about international criminal justice as a political strategy that directly can strengthen the state. So we're going to link international criminal justice directly with the very basic and conventional and traditional politics of states trying to stay states, try, states trying to stay powerful or become powerful. This sort of theoretical turn, I think, allows us to do two things. One is, um, first of all, it, t- it allows us to take the state seriously as an actor. Um, instead of sort of, dis- and I think, instead of sort of disaggregating the states to the individual level, so talking sort of more anecdotally or case- on a case-by-case case case basis, uh, referring to ex-president instrumentalized this for his gain, etc. Um, or uh, over kind of, being over-optimistic of, about what, of what international criminal justice can achieve and think that the state is no longer a relevant actor, by thinking about the, t- the connection between the two, we can actually take state as a political actor and also as a, judici- a juridical actor seriously in this context. And, but on a second level, uh, I think which may be more fundamental, is that we can actually start looking at the impact of interna- international criminal justice on politics much more seriously. I think there's a tendency, especially coming out of political science, international relations, when we talk about the politics of accountability, politics of international criminal justice, politics of international criminal law, we talk about the prior politics that leads to the creation of tribunals uh, or the law, 
and somehow this is a process that's exogenous to the existence of the law, the tribunal itself. Or we look at the aftermath of a prosecution or a trial. Does it deter violence? Does it help peace agreements? Does it, etc.? Does it help coalition building? And I think, you know, this kind of prior and post structure, while analytically very parsimonious, doesn't necessarily let us look at how the existence of international criminal justice um, changes the way political actors behave, changes their incentives, and creates new pathways for behavior for for political actors um, acting in a self-interested, rational way um, in international politics. Um, I'm not the first person to be to be thinking about it in these terms, but I do think that it is imperative for us to really understand, especially in this day and era, as as when international criminal justice is not new, it's not a new idea anymore. It's an existent idea, it's an existent institution, this jurisprudence. There's a lot of things that are already there. To think about it, not necessarily prior and post, but what is ha- what, how does it enmesh in uh, the day-to-day business of, of politics. So the theory that I'm building, um, I call it uh, judicial extroversion. And I don't know if anyone in the room is familiar or it comes from the background of African comparative politics, but... Um, no? Okay. Uh, <laughs> just a... Um, because uh, judicial extroversion as a theory does borrow um, its terminology and sort of uh, general thrust from a uh, theory of extroversion, which comes out of comparative um, African politics. Now, ex- extroversion, developed by François Béa, um, cre- conceptualizes the external conditions, such as globalization or simply uh, global economics, as a condition that can be instrumentalized for to generate specific material and political benefits domestically. And extroversion as that, as um, was conceptualized in African politics, was very much uh, concerned with ma- the, the generation of material rent and the, in- and the interaction between uh, material external conditions and the creation of domestic rent. Um, judicial extroversion um, kind of expands the remit of extroversion and says, wait a minute, it's not just economic dependency, it's not just economic globalization, it's not just material things floating around, it's um, more normatively charged ideational and legal systems such as international criminal justice can also become an external condition that can be instrumentalized to generate specific material or political benefits political benefits that are not necessarily about, again, material resources that are used in politics, but new language to, to enable new actions, um, legitimacy, recognition, more intangible things that enable a particular form of politics. And specifically, in, in uh, I argue th- that this model of judicial extroversion uh, can uh, can be used or is used to strengthen the state, and though that link is not necessarily um, it's not just empirically driven, but as I will explain later, it is kind of inherent in the idea of instrumentalizing international criminal justice. But I'll come back to that a little bit later, um, and I will advance three different models of of judicial extroversion throughout the presentation. In order to derive the three different models, we have to first go a step back and think about what I mean 
by strengthening the state, by thinking about what is the object that is being strengthened, what is the state. And the three models of judicial excavation is derived directly from the three different conceptions of the, states that I, of the state that I advance. One is state as the government and its institution, state as the international juridical entity, and state as elite power structure. Now, so when I say state as a government and its institutions, I am primarily highlighting um, whether they're physically you know, existent or not. The existence of a claim to- towards institutions that can be called the state. So it is not necessarily to say there needs to be a functioning government or there needs to be a set of functioning institutions for it to be called a state, but just on a very basic level, a state, ha- state has some idea of institution and something called a government for it to be a state. The state as an international juridical entity emphasizes the role of the state in the international sphere as both a political and legal actor. So a legally recognized political actor that has right to membership into international organizations. It can um, bring up cases to the ICJ, for example. It is represented in the United Nations. Other states think it is also a state. And the reason why that's important is because that kind of rec- recognition also means that it technically should have the right to domestic non-intervention. In other words, other states recognizing you as a state means that it's implicitly saying, I'm also not going to intervene in domestic, domestic um, affairs. And finally, state as an elite power structure. Now, this is a little bit more nebulous to define, but what I'm trying to highlight about by calling the state as an elite power structure is the fact that there are individuals that are embedded in the government and its institutions, whether just in name or in actuality. There are individuals who go out to the United Nations and say, I am the representative of so-and-so state. And these individuals linked together, whether uh, through simply political convenience or um, actu- uh, or um, legally mandated kind of official structures. Uh, this network of individuals also, in the day-to-day running of the state, beca- start to represent the state as such. Now, why do I break this down rather laboriously into three different aspects? It's because I want to highlight the fact that, uh, to highlight what I call the politics of statehood. Because um, I think what the danger of defining a state in a finite way in one sentence, a state is X, Y, and Z, is to obscure the fact that in, in international politics and even in domestic politics, a state can technically, quote unquote, exist without all three aspects that I highlight being present at the same time. So the most extreme example would be, say, um, one of the most extreme examples would be, say, if you are a government in exile and you're recognized by the United Nations as the representative sovereignty of this territory, but you've, you, the, the members of that, the elites who run that and the institutions that comprise it has actually never stepped step, uh, foot into the territory for three decades. Then you can't really say the government institution exists in the territory in the way that we recognize uh, in a a different state. But as an international juridical entity, it does exist. And as an elite power structure, we can then 
and uh, start to think about multiple elite power structures that are competing for the recognition of statehood. So those who are in the exile government and the group of people who are in that territory, presumably, you know, running things, conquering things, whatever you want to call it. Um, so in a way, the three definitions are simply an em emphasis of different aspects of what the state is, but at the same time, disparate, disparate um, kind of conditions that may or may not exist at the same time. And this um, sort of this dismantling, this recognition that the state can exist without necessarily fulfilling all of the different aspects of what we would conventionally call the state has led to, again, from a lot of um, literature coming out of comparative African politics, but also diff different regions in the developing world, for the lack of a better term, have sometimes put this in a negative term and says, well, therefore, they're, they're quasi-states. They're not actual real states. Or they are developing states. Or they are fragile states because they have a power elite power structure, but they don't really have an institution. They are internationally recognized, but they don't have an institution. So it has always been kind of characterized as conditions. But uh, what I would like to emphasize here is that um, not necessarily that a state needs to have all of these three things in order to become a state, but rather that a state, the politics of the state, of statehood, of state survival, is sort of manipulating and using the three aspects of, this, of the state itself to strengthen each other. To clarify, for example, you are an, uh, an exiled government that is an international juridical entity. You use that to get military aid, developmental aid, some kind of support externally, and you bring your state elite power structure into the, the territory to create an institution. So then you see that each aspect of the state is not necessarily just the objective or criteria, but it is actually the resource of politics itself. Another example would be, you are not an internationally recognized state. Uh, example would be, uh, yeah, so without well, Cambodia, right after the fall of the Khmer Rouge, for example, was run by one group of elites who had occupied all of the institutions in both a functional sense and a physical sense, but wasn't, wasn't recognized internationally. And for two decades, they tried to use both the fact that they had a cohesive elite power structure and the control of the institutions in order to get international juridical recognition and therefore membership into international institutions. So, so by kind of dismantling the idea of the state, what I'm trying to show is that the idea of the state itself becomes a resource of politics. Now, this laborious practice brings us back to what I was saying. There's a three different objectives of judicial extroversion. The state can be conceived of in different ways. The objectives of judicial extroversion can also be kind of correspondingly thought of in different ways. One would be using international criminal justice to strengthen the state as government and its constituent institutions. Second, using international criminal justice to enhance the state's status as an international juridical actor. And finally, using international criminal justice to advance the interests of the state as an elite power structure. So that's sort of my little diagram to clarify what may have been a bit too abstract and, and confusing. But um, 
So if these are if the, these three things are the constituent aspect of the states, they all strength they can all strengthen each other, but international criminal justice in the middle can strengthen each of it. So simple diagram. But what becomes interesting here is that access to international criminal justice is not equivalent between all three aspects of the state. So if we go back, so state as an international juridic, you need to be recognized as an international juridical actor and also have some sort of claim over its government and institutions in order to be able to access the kind of mechanisms of international criminal justice. So if we go back here, so if you are a bunch of political and military elites that um, captured the capital, but no one's recognizing you internationally, so no court will admit your you know, submissions as legitimate or, and you have no control over, say, um, your, your judiciary if it, uh, and whatnot, it's, uh, or your foreign or your foreign ministry, it's hard, it can't, it's difficult for you to access international criminal justice in the form that we understand today. The, uh, if a group of people who claim to run the country show up at the, show up with um, a self referral to the ICC, but the ICC recognizes a different group of people as the international juridical entity representing your sovereignty. Then here you see that it's, it's there are some, there are certain things that are more advantageous to have in order to access international criminal justice than others. The second part of my theory is to think about how, what exactly of interna- about international criminal justice are you using to strengthen the state? Okay, so international criminal justice can be used to strengthen different aspects of the state. Great. But what about international criminal justice helps you do that or can help you do that? And I think there are three things. One is the individualization of responsibility um, under international criminal law for, for mass violence. Um, by asking, by creating individual liability as opposed to collective responsibility, for example, um, you create an opportunity for cost shifting. So, and this goes back to the fact that individualization of responsibility and the criminological nature of mass crimes always had a, a slightly uncomfortable relationship. So mass atrocities that are criminalized under international criminal law, for example, like genocide or crimes against humanity, oftentimes refer its kind of special status back to the fact that it is indeed a mass crime. There is systematization, there is mass mobilization, mass participation. There is often an ideology that kind of promotes it, behind, uh, promotes it and therefore socializes people into um, believing that certain violent acts are more socially acceptable than others. In this kind of context, parceling out individual responsibility often uh, means that symbolically, at least, in the public eye, certain individuals can end up kind of bearing the cost of broader systems of violence or broader masses of violence um, simply by the reason that they, they have been selectively prosecuted. This is kind of realizing the reality that oftentimes, or pretty much all the time, when there was a mass a case of mass violence, you're not prosecuting every single individual that has been uh, implicated in it, starting from the instigators to the the henchmen to the bystanders to whatever. You're often going after for lots of different realistic kind of logistical, political, simply uh, uh, 
reasons, specific individuals that may or may not be the most suitable to be prosecuted for these crimes. So the easiest way of thinking about this is a lot of the criticisms levied against some of the cases in the ICT. Um, why, for example, you get a lot of middle kind of ground henchmen, you prosecute them and say, we have justice in Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, but who are these people and do they really represent the system that they were under, that they were kind of acting on behalf of? Second aspect is the criminalization of specific acts. So we take it for granted that these things are crimes, or we may take it for granted that these things are crimes. But for the vast majority of kind of political behavior of humans, this kind of mass violence was not criminalized. It was considered unfortunate behavior that sometimes arises, not necessarily crimes as such. And, and criminalization, therefore, is a quite unique move. And this, I think, creates an opportunity for depoliticization. Um, on, one, on one hand, it allows, by, I mean, by using the language criminality, uh, by saying it's a deviant act that goes against some kind of normative standard that we, we hold, as opposed to specifically, uh, as opposed to means of achieving particular political ends, you are de-emphasizing the politics behind the violence and the kind of the deviancy of, of the act. So, for example, the most extreme, one extreme example would be, let's say there are two rebel groups, um, government, oh, government versus a rebel group who wants to secede from the state. They have what they consider lots of legitimate political claims. I mean, this we see, for example, um, not as secessionists, but in the Colombian conflict. A lot of the conflict actors have been very strongly advocating the fact that they're political actors. The government, for a long time, have have, have argued that they're criminal actors, and therefore their kind of justifications and demands of the underlying causes of the conflict are not necessarily something that they need to consider because they're deviant criminal acts. The final kind of aspect is what I call the structural power of the state in international criminal justice. In the language of international criminal justice, international criminal law oftentimes bypasses the state. However, if you look at the way it actually works in reality, it is impossible, it is almost impossible to bypass the state as an actor um, in order to realize international criminal prosecutions. The states, uh, states are gatekeep, states not only create law, even though a lot of international criminal law would like, uh, people would like to claim that it comes from a source other than simply state consent, the Rome Statute. States came to Rome and made their Rome Statute. There we go. Um, states, need, states are needed to access domestic judiciaries. They need to access domestic investigators, access to physical sites where these violence has happened. You need to go through states as a kind of interstitial actor between the international and domestic. This means that simply by where, it, by where it is situated, if you kind of think about it visually, the state has the ability to, kind of, to control or pervert or at least influence the course and outcome of international criminal justice. And that is a very significant source of power vis-a-vis uh, -vis international institutions. And I think these are the three kind of resources, if you will, of, of judicial extroversion. So that's sort of the kind of complete diagram. So let's try the, the following part of the, of the presentation, we'll try to put 
um, this theory kind of into action or see how whether or not it helps us uh, kind of better systematically understand the examples that we are already familiar with. The first one will be Uganda. I think uh, Uganda self-referral to the ICC is one, one of the very well-researched areas um, uh, in, as an empirical example. Um, and my argument about the way I kind of uh, characterize the Uganda example is that international criminal justice was pursued as a as a uh, mean, as was pursued as a political strategy to create flexibility for the Ugandan government to continue war. There was lots of things happening within and outside of Uganda that was saying that um, the way you're conducting the conflict needs to be rethought. There was a criticism coming from international community, mainly the United Nations, but also other international actors uh, that were becoming more and more concerned about the humanitarian situation in the north. And this was shifting the kind of conflict narrative away from the evil LRA, the crazy LRA, to the humanitarian crisis in the north. This creates a crisis for the Ugandan state because it is encroaching upon the state's, abil state's ability to say, look, we as government and constituent institutions actually work. We can create security for, for our citizens. But also there was a lot of domestic war fatigue that was growing, and unsurprisingly, most uh, particularly in the, in the north. This may have been negligible or less important if you take up, if, uh, unless you consider the broader context of domestic politics in which um, there were increasing demands for multi-party electoral democracy. So they, they wanted to move away from the one-party system that they have, which means that kind of splintering away or lack of cohesion in the, in the domestic constituency regarding this war could eventually become some kind of a sticking point for the opposition um, uh, and, and become a threat to the, to the Ugandan state as it stood, especially the, 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 the elite power structure that was in power at that time. But at the same time, the, the, there was a lot of incentive to continue war. There was a huge war economy that was supporting lots of, lots of uh, aspects of the Ugandan state, including the elite power structure, but also its government institutions, both illicitly and non-illicitly. Um, and there was the, the military uh, maintained a very prominent position within the Ugandan government, so it was difficult for them to difficult for the political actors to say, well, we're going to ignore all of your demands and, in and interests and move away from this particular particular war. Judicial extravision, or the use of international criminal justice, paradoxically allowed them to continue war, because by casting the LRA as criminals, or international criminals, that Uganda had a joint international kind of responsibility to go after, or defeat, or capture meant uh, there was a stronger normative argument to be made about continuing, um, continuing the internal conflict and therefore allowing them to address the diver divergent kind of pressures that the state was facing. And so if you, uh, and at the same time, by kind of concentrating a lot of the blame onto identifiable individuals within the LRA in particular, um, you, the Ugandan government, uh, I think, expected to kind of draw the attention away from uh, increasing kind of arguments about broader structural causes of the conflict, the, the blame of the, UP, the Ugandan armed forces, and also President Museveni himself. So you see that they're utilizing all uh, the individualization and criminalization aspect of international criminal justice, but also 
there was a great confidence within the Ugandan kind of government and elites that they were that they would be able to um, exploit the structural power that they had as a state. But as a member of international community, as a recognized government, they had all the keys to let or not let the ICC in. And you, you see that from the very beginning when they're making the self-referral, they're able to negotiate a position where the, the um, spotlight of the investigation is only on the LRA and not, not on the Ugandan forces. Um, a slightly different example is the Cambodian example of, and here I'm referring to the 1997 joint request for an international criminal uh, tribunal of an ad hoc nature uh, to specifically look at the crimes committed by the Khmer Rouges in the 1970s. And this request was made in the context of a power-sharing government between the parties Fun uh, Simpek and CPP, which until this day remain uh, probably two of the most relevant political actors in Cambodia. Um, and they were locked into a very intense rivalry at that time to gain, to consolidate their power before the next election, which was, 1990, which was 1998. In fact, right after the request was made, they cut, the CPP launches a coup d'etat against Fun Simpek, uh, runs them out of the capital, and wins the election. Now, part of the rivalry was to, to attract defections from the Khmer Rouges, which was existent at that time as a rebel group operating out of the borderlands. Why that was important was that if they could secure a, a defection from a large faction of the Khmer Rouges to their party, that meant they will bring in lots of money. The Khmer Rouges were in control of a lot of the um, precious gem mining areas. They would also bring in a lot of armed forces. So in, ante in anticipation of uh, sort of a fallout between the two parties, each party was trying to get as many Khmer Rouges to come and join their party, um, uh, to their party. And in this context, they, uh, both parties used the promise of amnesty from prosecution for Khmer Rouge era, uh, from crimes committed in the 1970s to the, to the Khmer Rouges. The competition then became who can deliver a, much, a more credible promise for an amnesty. And in the end of the day, the CPP was able to um, provide a much more credible uh, guarantee, partially because this, even though it was a power-sharing government, so that both of them were technically the state, the CPP had full control over the government and institutions meaning the judiciary was under their thumb. Funsenpeg, despite nominally having people from their party appointed to these institutions, didn't necessarily have any control over, this, over what the courts were going to do, and um, particularly in the, le the higher levels of court. And they also didn't have control over the official armed forces of Cambodia. CPP had many more people within the armed forces that were loyal to them than Funsenpeg, which meant that if a huge faction of the Khmer Rouges defected, the CPP would be able to protect them physically by using the armed forces, but also guarantee that judges would pardon them um, for whatever crime that, uh, that they would be accused of. So Sun Simpik lost, and a huge faction of the Khmer Rouges um, ended up defecting to the CPP. At that very moment, Sun Simpik starts very vigorously asking for an international criminal tribunal. 
because they understood that whatever deal that they make domestically between the CPP and Khmer Rouge, and whatever pardon domestic judges give, an international tribunal will be able to trump that. So using the only kind of aspect of the state that they can actually exert, meaning their membership or their recognition as an international juridical actor, Funsen Peck pleads with UN officials within Cambodia, um, and ultimately the Secretary General of the United Nations, saying that we really, really want, suddenly, after two decades, an international criminal tribunal for the Khmer Rouges. This is a position that they never had prior to this, this kind of moment of intense political rivalry. In fact, for the two decades prior to that, the CPP was the one always asking for an international criminal process to prosecute um, the Khmer Rouges. At that time, the CPP did not have international recognition. And therefore, they thought if, you could, if they could only prove that the Khmer Rouges were genocidaires, the international community would recognize the CPP as um, uh, basically the good political actors of Cambodia who brought genocidaires to justice. Um, so the judicial extraversion became the strategy of the weaker coalition partner to block disadvantageous domestic alliances. So if you look at that, it's a much more schematic, uh, simpler diagram, where for Funsenpeg, the access as an international entity becomes the only resource they can use. Now finally, I'll act I'll very briefly just to talk about the counterexample of Colombia, because I think the Colombian case um, sort of reaffirms a lot of the conventional wisdom that we had about what states would behave um, when faced with the option of a domestic or international process of criminal justice. So I'm only looking at the, the example is only about the paramilitary demobilization. And at that time, the ICC was, had just been established. The ICC was also looking into Colombia as a broad situation um, for possible future prosecutions. They weren't necessarily looking at the paramilitary side of the conflict in particular, but they, they were looking at the general the milieu of the, of the conflict. However, in Colombia, just to very briefly sketch out, there was um, a lot of fear that the ICC, or a lot, a lot of apprehension about the ICC taking over um, any case regarding the paramilitaries in Colum uh, or any Colombian actors. One reason was that the paramilitaries as an actor were very close to the government throughout history and therefore it could be very embarrassing for the Colombian government if international community kind of saw that. But I think um, what I think a lot of uh, kind of conventionalism misses is that in a lot of conversation with Colombian actors, I noticed that a, there was a very strong perceived lack of structural power of the Colombian state. They really had very little expectation that whatever international processes, uh, process starts, that they would be able to control the outcome or at least mitigate the outcome. They thought big powerful um, court in The Hague, will come in and then we, we basically we can't do anything about it anymore. It's out of our hands and we need it to be in our hands. This is, kind of, this is sort of the baseline kind of um, uh, view that all Colombian political actors at that time had, even from the government's opposition. And, I, and part of it I think has to do with the fact that 
Colombia is existing in a very dense regional kind of court system. And the regional kind of a regional uh, legal and court system has been quite robust and strong and indeed difficult to control. They have, they have gotten a couple of uh, case, uh, case, uh, cases in the Inter- Inter-American Court of Human Rights that was against Colombian state interests just a couple of years prior. And this experience, I think, very much increased sort of the expectation of what an external court can or cannot do um, and how much they can really participate in, in the actions of the, case, of, the, of the court. But also, what seemed to matter was the perceived strength of the state as government institutions. All relevant actors, including the paramilitaries, but also government and opposition actors, um, shared the perspective that judicial and legislative institutions are robust in Colombia. And that reputation mattered quite strongly to them. In other words, the cost of giving up that reputation was much strongly perceived than in, in any of the other cases. This is something that a lot of people have said is empirically true and therefore is true. But if you look at the negotiations with FARC, uh, the most recent one in Havana, um, the, I mean, we don't know if it's going to be implemented or not, but the current peace agreements look, uh, include a judicial body that includes foreign uh, legal experts into it. And how, part of the story of how that came about is, historically, FARC does not share the view that judicial institutions, legislative institutions in Colombia are robust. They, a lot of, there was a lot of talk that they felt that they were biased or corrupt as opposed to robust in the same way the paramilitaries um, or the, the government at this time um, felt. So conclusions and implications um, from this exercise. What kind of uh, the idea, what the idea of judicial extravision highlights is that, um, yes, domestic political circumstances matter, but also judicial extraversion is a very short-term tactic. It's not necessarily a long-term strategic commitment, even. It's more about, for example, if you recall the case on, on Cambodia, it's more about immediate crisis to certain actors in the state or certain parts of the state and an immediate response. And there, there seems to be an expectation of, from those who utilize international criminal justice in this way that down the road they can reverse it, or down the road things will change. It is not, um, it is not something that is as binding as one would expect them to, to kind of think about. I think this has broader implications on other debates in transitional justice, particularly in terms of deterrence. If a lot of political actors, or if at least some political actors, consider this as a short-term tactic for an immediate relief and keep using it in this way, what, is, what effect will that have in terms of uh, general deterrence of violence or certain forms of violence? What can we really say about deterrence if there's a mismatch between the expectation of the political actors using it and, and, and sort of external observers? Um, who represents the state matters, so the composition of the elite power structure seems to matter in terms of, uh, but I think the biggest kind of implication that I want to draw up is the, 
is the fact that judicial extroversion, think about, thinking about international criminal justice as a political strategy of judicial extroversion, <coughs> highlights the fact that international criminal justice can end up entrenching state power. And that, I think, is an effect of kind of the uneasy coexistence between what, what, what one can call the cosmopolitan um, ambitions of international criminal justice, creating law that doesn't need the state, creating criminality that is beyond particularities of domestic judiciaries, um, and the continued existence of an international political world where states are still the dominant actor that can move things and shape things. Uh, and in this kind of uneasy coexistence, there's a lot of room for instrumentalization, for states to step in and fill that space uh, between the ideals of cosmopolitanism and the, and the reality on the ground. Um, this kind of, if it's, and, and to run on a sub-point, this highlights the possibility of using international criminal justice to enhance the coercive capacity of the state, the, the idea that international criminal justice can be used to conduct more and more, as we see in the case of Uganda, which was also sort of the uh, expectation of, of the Cambodian actors as well. Um, and this kind of, again, brings us to uncomfortable um, rethinkings of ideas of deterrence or ideas of peace resulting from the pursuit of criminal justice. But on a... I don't know if it's an optimistic note, but the kind of logical corollary to, to that for me is that it also highlights the possibility of international criminal justice to create illiberal peace, or at least illiberal stability, in the sense that in certain situations where the state is, is faced with strong <coughs> internal challengers, if international criminal justice as a political strategy can in fact entrench the power of the state, then perhaps stability in a short term, can be reached in that in that kind of situ in that case, just not through the liberal means that proponents of international criminal justice would like it to. So may so uh, perhaps the impact of international criminal justice is also in, in illiberal areas that we are often not accustomed to looking at. So that is the end of my presentation.